1: The Intercooler podcast is sponsored by JBR Capital, one of the UK's leading car finance specialists. Now, we only partner with like-minded organizations who really understand what it means to be a car enthusiast, and JBR Capital is a perfect fit for us. It's run by people who really love cars, and importantly, vehicle finance is all JBR Capital does. That alone is what the company exists to do. So, whether you're looking to fund a classic sports car, supercar, or hypercar, see what JBR Capital can do for you. And it's not just about very high end, expensive, unobtainium. In fact, the minimum borrowing is £25,000 and the average £80,000. Head to at JBR Capital on social media or jbrcapital.com online and tell them the intercooler sent you. Right, let's get on with this week's podcast. Welcome to the Intercooler Podcast. Hi everyone, welcome to episode 87 of the Intercooler Podcast. I'm Dan Prosser, joined once again by a very poorly
0: Andrew Yes, whatever, what you incredibly sorry for me. <laughs> very croaky today. You felt better, haven't you? i have felt better but it's not the dreaded so i, I don't really care i'll be fine yeah. i'll be absolutely fine i've been tested and tested and it's not what i you know so you know who cares
1: yeah i might be doing more talking than usual in this episode of the podcast but that's okay so we're talking about the past present and future of the supercar sort of i mean actually we're just talking about three cars that we've been driving recently but they they quite neatly f- slot into those three categories don't they um The past is a Ferrari that I've driven recently with a naturally aspirated V12. The present is another Ferrari that we've both driven, but one with turbos and a hybrid system. Um, And the future is an all-electric racing car that you've had a go in, Andrew, that we're told previews a forthcoming generation of road-going performance cars. So we're going to talk about those three cars, also a couple of other bits in between. I'll get us started then with the Ferrari 812 Competizione. You haven't had a go in this car, Andrew. I, I mean, is, is this the kind of Ferrari that you like? Of course it is,
0: yeah. Um, I mean, I think, you can, I think you can argue the toss about whether you really need... How much power has it got, 800 and something? 830 horsepower. 830 horsepower. So, I mean, clearly there are problems inherent with trying to deploy that amount of power through, um, through two-driven wheels. And, um, but I think that there is something gloriously excessive um, about that, and also, you know, going back to what we we're talking about with, you know, traditional sports car, there is just something magical, isn't there, about front engine rear drive sports cars, oh, uh, almost nice. regardless of how much power they have. Um, and if one also happens to have, you know, a naturally aspirated V twelve motor under the bonnet, I mean, even now it just sounds. And I never thought we'd get to this stage, but it just sounds so old school, doesn't it? Mm. Gosh, a normal naturally aspirated V twelve. Gosh, what a what a quaint <laughs> idea that is. Um and it is sad, isn't it? It already feels like yesterday's story, doesn't it? Like the past. Yeah. Um, where in fact, you know, these are the things that you know, I don't know about you, but when I was a kid, um it was it was V12 engines. It was frankly Ferrari V12 engines in Daytonas and 250 GTOs and boxers and you know, and Testarosses and all that sort of stuff, um, that you know made me passionate about this business. Um and you know, I suppose maybe this is kind of leaping ahead a bit too far, but you know, in thirty years' time, um, you know, people who are kids today, um, you know, are they really going to get passionate about you know sports cars with refrigerator motors in them? I, it's a difficult to see, isn't it? I mean, maybe there'll be other things. Maybe there'll be other things. I'm, not, I'm sure we'll. I'm not sure we'll talk about that later on. But um, yeah, I mean, it's it is sad to be talking about. Um something which is certainly so much part of everything that i love about cars in the past tense mm. but that's where we are
1: that is where we are that's where we are and that's I, I, really that's what this episode of the podcast is all about um so in every article that i wrote about the competizione and in the video that i shot shot on it for piston heads um i described it as the most powerful ferrari v12 ever um not the most powerful ferrari ever because both the la ferrari and the SF90 are more powerful um, with their hybrid systems. But in terms of just the engine itself, this was the most powerful Ferrari V12 ever. It isn't anymore. <laughs> so not, How long did it, that last? It lasted a couple of weeks. <laughs> I was right at the time. Um, but Ferrari has recently announced the Daytona SP3, which uses an ever-so-slightly-more-powerful version of the same engine. But, um, so well, I mean, go. it's
0: like a couple of horsepower, isn't it? It's nothing
1: at all. It's not much at all. So the competition has lost that... Uh, that title but who cares um, so this thing is limited to um, a few hundred cars it's something like 400 grand um, a hell of a lot of money it's got more aero than the super fast you can see it most in that rear deck where the screen the rear screen should be with those vortex generators on it um, and it's just an angrier looking car overall um, it has or well, certainly the one i drove has the the very sticky mission in cup 2r tires that we've spoken about those tires before because they're basically the reason why Nürburgring lap records are tumbling by huge margins, um, seemingly every other week at the moment.
0: Yeah, they're certainly a very large part of the reason, aren't they? I think, yeah. I think there's an aero element in there as well, but yes, absolutely. Um,
1: and this Ferrari also has independent rear wheel steering, which is a world first. And it's an interesting thing. They say that if you can control the rear wheels independently of one another, make them do separate things, you can get sharper responses... Um, you can improve traction. You can improve stability on the way into corners because they can both tow in under braking, just to make the rear of the car track straight and true. So there are all sorts of um, all sorts of benefits from it. But I mean, it's a it's a marginal gain sort of thing, isn't it? Which is where these manufacturers are with these very high performance cars these days.
0: But can, but can I just say now? Um, you know, I think we have sometimes been critical of Ferraris and maybe some of the way way they go about things from time to time, but. The engineering mm. firepower those guys have, their creativity, their imagination, their ability to just not just have really great ideas, but then realize them and make them work really. I mean, I'm I'm absolutely, I mean, Ferraris are today the best engineer that they have ever been. Um, you know, and I know people. It's so easy, particularly if you're like old like me, to think back to the days of the Dino and the Daytona and go, "Well, well you know, it's not like that anymore. Um, things ain't what they used to be." But actually, I think those guys are more on top of their game now than they have ever been. And you know, you only have to look at you know. All the sort of side slip control. I mean, you probably, you, you, Dan, you've definitely sat in a sort of Ferrari press conference. One of those marathon yeah. sort of three hour things where you spend half your time staring at the ceiling because you just don't un- understand what you're being told. But actually, it's all part of the. It's all part of the mystique, isn't it? It's all part of the of, of getting immersed within Ferrari and everything they do, and they really do. They, they 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 take things as far as they've ever gone before, and then just go further. And I think that independent rear wheel steer where one. Wheel can do a completely different thing to the other one. Instead of you know both turning in the same direction or both turning in the opposite direction, but always the same amount in the same way. I just think that's really smart. I think that's just really really clever. And and you can just bet we'll see that on a load of other stuff. And everybody will be doing it in five years' time, won't they?
1: Yeah, they will. There's no question they will. And I think it's it's the sort of thing that a company can do when it's doing very well financially, when it's well resourced, when it knows its cars will sell well, when it's secure. Um, it's it would be unusual for the likes of Aston Martin to be fitting the DBS, for instance,
0: with independent rear
1: wheel steering because there are, it has other things to be thinking about at the moment. A company like Aston
0: Martin could only do that um, if they could just get an off the peg system from Mercedes Benz, yeah. um, and you know, and, and certainly an awful lot of stuff that is on Aston Martins, and I suspect an awful lot more stuff that will come on Aston Martins in the future will will only get there via that route. They won't, you know, there won't be Aston Martin engineers sitting there dreaming up all this stuff, I don't think. I hope that it would be lovely to think that they were. But, um, yeah, and as you say, Ferrari, they are, they are so successful. They're making so much money. They are so confident. I, I guess another thing which I do admire is because you and I know that actually on-limit handling is probably number 27 on the list of reasons that people buy a Ferrari. Sure. And yet they're still doing this stuff mm. because they I think they regarded as – um, just playing to the authenticity, and just making the you know. However, whatever the reason people might buy a Ferrari, you know, probably more than anything else, just to be seen in. Um, they still want to know, don't they? That the car is the real deal underneath, yeah. uh, and they absolutely are. And it matters. It really matters to the the people at Ferrari, the test drivers,
1: the engineers. They want to know. They want to know what you think. Um, and it, it means a lot to them. And the yeah, the simple fact of the matter is the competizione is sensational to drive. I have to be upfront and honest and say I've only, because of the way of these Ferrari launch events, I've only done six or seven quick laps at most of a relatively short circuit. I haven't driven it on the road, and I've only driven it on the track where the thing was developed, so presumably it's going to be pretty good there. Um, even so, I just thought it was absolutely sensational. So... I mean, the engine, the even the super-fast engine is a stunning thing. This one goes 500 RPM higher to 9,500 at the top end. It's, it's just an incredible Ferrari engine. The, the drama, the intensity of the way the power is delivered, um, the sound it makes, the, how it lights up right at the top end and just keeps pulling. With, it doesn't fade. It doesn't wilt at all. It's it's such a stirring thing, and you at no point do you think, oh, but if it had turbos, or oh, if it had a hybrid system,
0: just don't miss that stuff. Just just, just talk to me a little bit about. Um, a, I'm particularly interested in this car um, because its predecessor um, yeah. in these sort of you know limited edition um, top end you know V12 supercar things was obviously the F12 TDF. Mm. Um, which was one scary car <laughs> I've heard, and, and uh, oh, oh my! I mean, I, I can remember driving. I actually drove it in the UK uh, in January, like sort of one degree. And and honestly, I I regard getting that car across a Welsh mountain and back in the same number of pieces when I started as one of my greatest achievements in <laughs> Um It was so scary, and, and and but when you talk to the guys at Ferrari about it, um, they go, "Yeah, we know." That's how we wanted it to be. We didn't want this to be a car which is just going to sort of deliver it on a plate to you. We wanted this to be a car which was really, really going to challenge the drivers. Now, I'm guessing they've kind of rolled back a bit on that with the Competizione.
1: Yeah, they definitely have. And they intentionally have. Um, I'm not sure they're admitting that they went too far with the TDF as such, but they... They make it quite clear. That they definitely, the they
0: definitely intended the TDF to be spiky. I mean, I've been yeah. told that, that they they wanted it to be spiky. They didn't want it to do it, just do it all for the driver.
1: And they want the competition owner to be very different to that. They want it to fill you with confidence and to feel settled and uh, stable and secure. Um, and honestly, it, if that was their brief, they've absolutely nailed it. And I have, you know, I haven't driven it across, across a cold, wet welsh mountain roads. so i don't know maybe it is spiky and difficult in those conditions and certainly on those very aggressive tires it inevitably would be um but in the conditions i drove it it was it was
0: stunning the steering i think i i think you still know i think i think if it was i mean i can remember harris drove one at uh, a tdf at rickard in very mm. benign conditions and found it spiky i think you know obviously the tires if they're out of their operating window then that's a whole other world of pain but yeah. you know I think spiky cars are spiky cars generally
1: yeah this isn't it's just not it's just not spiky um, it's st- the steering is measured rather than sort of over light and over quick and over over responsive it's me- it's still quite quick quite light but measured <clears throat> the grip is huge the it's got a very very wide and very sticky tire on the front axle and it, it just doesn't under steer on track on a warm track it just doesn't i don't know what you have to do to make it push on um so it's this, just oversteers no the stunning thing is that it doesn't do that either it's the rear just follows the front and i think probably it's how a the car is but also the, re- the independent rear wheel steering is just helping the rear end follow the front and actually it doesn't want to oversteer you, so you can really fling it into a corner The front end will bite because it's got so much grip, but you know that the rear end is going to be right there with you and it's not going to get lively. You're not going to have to catch it with a bit of corrective lock at all. It's just going to dig in. It's just going to bite and follow you around, Um, which is, it's an extraordinary thing to feel. And it just means that you're not put on edge and you're flooded with confidence because you know this car's on your side. It's not looking for an opportunity to snap and to bite you. It's just with you the whole time. Um however these modern ferraris all modern ferraris are very very sort of progressive when you start toying with them a little bit on the power away from a corner um, it's you can you can just slide it out of the hairpin at at fiorano the bottom hairpin um, and it's, it's brilliant it's easy it's progressive it's quite benign um so you've got this thing with astonishing grip incredible balance but when you want it to be it's also quite playful um the telling thing for me was that after and this is a fairly high concept way of describing a car. But after a few laps, I just felt like I was sitting right in the middle of the car rather than over to one side. And actually, I felt like I wasn't driving around a circuit, but I was guiding the car down a toboggan run, the Cresta run or something. Just because it is so locked onto its line, it's as though it couldn't go anywhere else. Um, and you only feel that in a beautifully resolved car, one that you do. fills you with confidence. You it's an extraordinary, extraordinary thing, all, and it's all just set off by that wonderful engine um, that just just makes you grin ear to ear. Um, so yeah, if they set out to build something that was more manageable, more approachable than the TDF, I haven't driven the TDF, but by all accounts, I mean that's precisely what
0: they've done. And yet, we're talking about this car and the concept of it, in the context—sorry—of it representing the past. Sad, isn't it? <sighs>
1: It's a shame, and you talk to them and say, "So is this the last naturally aspirated front-engine V12 that you'll do?" And they just say, "We will keep doing them for as long as we can."
0: So, I'll put, so, 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 so they'll put a hybrid on it, I guess.
1: I guess so. I guess that has to happen at some point. Um, they're, they're, you know, they're keeping their cards very close to their chest. They're not telling us a thing at the moment. But yeah. Um, well, while we're on the topic of Ferrari, and before we get get on to the car that represents the present in this episode of the podcast, which is the SF90 Assetto Fiorano. Um, I think we should talk about Fiorano itself. And also there's a film that you've watched that you want to discuss. Um, Fiorano itself though. I mean, it's just such a, such a cool place to go and visit. We have discussed this a little bit on the podcast before, but it's so evocative. And the moment you go through that tunnel, you just think, wow, all the people who have, dri- have walked or driven through this tunnel before, and you're just flooded with a sense of history,
0: aren't you? And you see Enzo's place and it's just so cool. And, you know, and, and I think the moment, you know, I've, I, I've gone though. I mean, I'm very lucky. I've been there, you know, any number of times, um, but it's never normal. It's never just another place that you're going. Oh yeah. Um, you yeah, know, Because we all go to, um, you know, car factories, which have manufacturer test tracks attached to them and off we go. And, you know, that's fine. Um Fiorano is something completely different and you know and sometimes I see sort of other journalists who are sort of a bit blasé about the place and yeah well you know and you know that's fine but to me you know as you say it's where you know it's where Gilles Villeneuve used to shake down (laughs) his flat 12 Formula One cars Um, and and when you're going around there it hasn't changed it is now what it was then. I mean, it's not, as you know, it's not a particularly long circuit. There are one or two te- quite technical bits on it, um, but it's not, um, you know, it's not a, it's not like a sort of you know Nurburgring type challenge, is it? No, no. But it's 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 so about the sense of occasion of being there, and we're always we're always really flustered, aren't we? Because you know, when you go there, as you as you experienced with the eight twelve competition uni, it's not like they go, well, Dan, here's a car, see you in an hour. It's like, okay, Dan, here's a car. Uh, you can have Rafa, um, mm. Raffaele Di Simone, the brilliant test driver. It's one of my favorite people. Anyway, you, know, you can have a couple of laps of Rafa driving it. Um, and then you've got like an out, three laps, and in, and that's it. Mm. And that's what you've gone to Italy for. Mm. Um, and so it's so difficult, isn't it? You sort of get out there on the track. And, you know, this might be as it was with your, in your case with the competition, union, the only time you're going to drive the car. And you've got to do your entire job. In less than 10 minutes, which is ridiculous it's with tough. a car with 800 and something horsepower, just trying to understand it, you know, understand all its various aspects. So you can't, you know, you haven't got time, have you, to sort of go through, I don't know, you know, sort of sport mode and then race mode. And then you basically just have to go to CT off um, and start skidding in about because you just haven't got the time to go and do all that due diligence. And uh, and what people want to know is ultimately what these things are like to drive. Um, and so that's what you do. You just drive them as fast as you possibly can. Come back in, you know, eight minutes later, somewhat breathless, quite glad not to have been an idiot of yourself in front of everybody watching. And that's it. And yet you've been out there skidding around Fiorano. And I think, <laughs> you know, I just feel so, you know, this this sounds like, doesn't it? That we're sort of in Ferrari's troll. We're not at all. Um, and, you know, and, and I'm sure we'd be saying entirely complimentary things about the SF90. But, it is just a special place isn't it when you go there and i'm I'm, and i make no apology for that Mm. i'm not saying anything about the products that you drive there but the place itself Fiorano, is just a very very special place
1: i agree with every word agree with every word um i saw i stepped out of the competizione just a buzz, just coursing with adrenaline so so thrilled by it all which i think says a lot about the car um and reflects interestingly on another ferrari that we'll talk about but anyway before we get on to the sf90 let's talk about ferrari race to immortality um a film that you've
0: been watching yeah so i'm i'm ashamed that i haven't seen this before it came out in 2017 Uh, i was actually put onto it by our friend marino franchiti um who did a lot of the driving for it and you can believe i hadn't seen it um, but i hadn't um and um yeah, because I was feeling grim. Um, I'm feeling really sorry for myself. I just sat down and uh, and watched it. I think you can rent it for a couple of quid on Amazon. Um, and basically, it's a it's a documentary. Um, there is some modern stuff that's been shot for it, but just to sort of add to the drama of it. But basically, it's it's a documentary about five Ferrari racing drivers. So there's Eugenio Castellotti, Luigi Musso, um, Marquis Fonda Portago, Peter Collins and Mike Hawthorne, all of whom who raced for Ferrari between... 1956, 1958, all of whom died. Um, and that in itself is a pretty sober, Mike Hawthorn didn't die in a Ferrari, but the others did. Um, and the kind of the, the fundamental question, I guess, the documentary asks is: Was this just shocking bad luck, or was it the result of this thing that we've spoken about before of Ferrari, Enzo Ferrari? pushing his drivers, setting them off against each other um, and accepting the consequences of that. Um, And it is one of those questions to which there is no specific answer. I mean, I think certainly the consensus is that Enzo did everything he could to encourage competition between his drivers. Um, But I, I do commend it to absolutely anybody because... The footage, I mean, I, I I'd thought I'd seen every bit of footage there was from that part, but there's not. They have found stuff which I've never seen before. They've interviews with people, you know, there's a long interview with Ferrari. They've got hold of um, Mike Hawthorne's wife, uh, sorry, Mike Hawthorne's girlfriend, Peter Collins' wife, um, today, and an interview them which is amazing stuff uh de portago who i've never heard speak before i thought you know because he was a sort of quintessentially italian cat um he'd speak like a quintessentially italian he doesn't he sounds he sounds like he's an american um and to hear him saying um oh it's just it's, it's heartbreaking to him to say i just know it. it's not going to happen to me huh. you know when it happens to other people i'll think they made a mistake they were unlucky whatever i just know it's not going to happen to me. And then he heads off in the 1957 millimillia, and he kills, well, he doesn't, he hasn't been as a puncture, it just happens. Um, And he's dead and his co-driver's dead. And I think there are nine spectators dead, five of whom are children. Um, And it's, you know, it's a, it's a very sobering watch. It's a very sad watch. It's a very informative watch, Um, but it's, yeah, I was just, I was so moved by seeing the sights and sounds. There's so much stuff that I haven't seen before um, so yeah, I mean, there's not much more to say about it than that. Um, but you know, if you think about it, all those drivers in such a short period of time—they um, got they've they got an interview. I mean, I don't even know how he did it because Peter Collins and Mike Hawthorne were literally best friends. I mean, you know, they were the bestest buddies um, you could possibly imagine two people ever being. And they're interviewing Hawthorne, you know, just after Peter Collins has died, and saying you know Hawthorne was following Collins when he had his accident. Um, and saying, well, what happened? What did you see? Um, you know, what kind of friend was he to you? And this poor sod, who himself was very, very sick with a kidney disease, which probably would have ensured he didn't have a very long life anyway, is just sitting there. And you can see he's just completely ruined by this. Wow. And it's, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's very, very powerful. It's very, very moving um, and very, very thought provoking. I think it's probably the best insight I've seen into the peril of racing in that era. Um, And the other thing I would say is, you know, these guys didn't die because Ferrari made flimsy cars that folded up around you. Uh, It absolutely didn't. Um, There's some question mark over Castellotti's accident. Um, Musso made a mistake. Uh, De Portago had a puncture. Uh, Peter Collins made a mistake. Um, You know, I've said this before and I haven't had anyone convincingly come back to me. I don't know anybody who ever died at the top level in a Ferrari sports car or Formula One car through pure mechanical failure of a Ferrari component. Now, I'm not saying it hasn't happened, I just don't know that. So it's not like it was sort of Lotus, where Colin Chapman built cars as light and flimsy as humanly possible and accepted that there were breakages and there could be some consequences from that. And yet they still died. It's, yeah, it's it's very, very thought-provoking stuff. Um, So... Yeah, Ferrari race to immortality. I would, uh, I, you know, um, I mean, it's not, it's not an easy watch at times, um, but it's definitely something. You know, I think the sort of people who listen to this should would appreciate going and seeing.
1: Okay, sounds like it is one to one to add to my list. Ferrari race to to immortality, and it's on Amazon. You said, didn't you? Um, Okay, let's move on, but keep it Ferrari. Uh, So we've spoken about the SF ninety Stradale before on this podcast, but since then we've both driven. The SF90 Assetto Furano, um, which is the more track-focused one. So certainly when I drove it, it had the Cup to r tyres again. It's got titanium springs, Multimatic fixed-rate dampers, so not adaptive dampers. More aero, a bit less weight. But it's the same 1,000-horsepower hybrid um, motor, hybrid powertrain with three motors, two on the front axle. One between the engine and gearbox. It's a very thin one. They call it the pizza. It's a thin, round motor. And a twin-turbo V8. Um, so I drove it again at Furano. Same deal. Only a handful of quick laps. Haven't tried it on the road. Um, I think you drove it at Anglesey and on the road as well.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's big on the road. Is big it wide car? Yeah. I mean, it's no Um The media. It, it was, it was it actually it was okay, but you need um, a, a bit of space. But um, yeah, then I spent a day um, yeah on Anglesey with it, dry, thankfully. Huh. So
1: I, I loved the, the feel of the dampers on track because I thought they just felt so much... I thought the body control was amazing. Um, and I thought the the sort of transparency, how you could feel the car beneath you, is much better than a, an adaptive damper. But there is... I was told that maybe for certain roads, it's actually a
0: bit too firm. Is that the case? No, it's fine. Is it? It's fine. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I didn't have a problem with the ride quality on the road at all. I mean, you know, it's a certain sort of car, isn't it? it? So you're not expecting it to ride like an S-Class. But for a, you know, a mid-engine Ferrari sports car, it's absolutely fine. Um, Didn't have a problem with it on the road. Um, It's an interesting thing, isn't it? I mean, you have presumably driven F8s and Pistas and 488 GTBs and that sort of thing. Was there ever a time when you were driving the SF90 when you thought, I'm having more fun in this than you would have done in any of those? No. No.
1: I th- no. I thought it was astonishingly capable, um, technically very, very competent. But I kept thinking when I was driving this car around Fiorano, I kept thinking no Ferrari road car has ever gone around this place faster officially. Um, it's quicker than a. La- it's quicker than the eight twelve. Quicker than a LaFerrari. Um, it would be a different a different matter at a faster circuit like Spa or Monza. They've told me this. But at a circuit like Fiorano, where there's lots of traction zones, this car is quicker than a LaFerrari unit because it's got that driven front axle. Um, It just gets out of corners like nothing else. Um, So it's the quickest thing around Fiorano. And I was just thinking, shouldn't I be wired by this driving experience? Shouldn't I be stepping out thinking, oh my goodness me, I can't believe what we've just done there. Um, I've probably never driven around a circuit faster in a road car. And I stepped out thinking, it's bloody capable, isn't it? Um, but I've, I've had more fun in a...
0: One more lap in that or the 812, you wouldn't think about it. it,
1: was, it, it yeah, it's no contest.
0: It is exactly... I, were, I was to, I, it, it, Objectively, I was blown away by the car because it's still, even with all the lightweight stuff on it, it's still, it's still quite a heavy car. Yep. And its ability to deploy, it, its power, its ability to control its body um
1: mm.
0: you know at Anglesey where there are some you know there's some really really quick stuff I was absolutely knocked out by it, it was so we had some really quick stuff up there we had GC3s and atoms and that sort of it was so much faster than anything else out there mm. uh, even on I mean I drove it on cups and cup two hours and even on a cup tire it was just in a different it was just playing a different game to anything else but it's not all there is to it is there no, it's not, you know. And what I found was, you know, that delicious moment that you get, and you, you get it in an absolutely standard 488 GTB, where, you know, if you're on a track and you've got the toys turned off and the car starts to move and you've just, you know, you're not being ridiculous with it, but you're just balancing the car slightly oversteering it and you just get that delicious sort of drift. And it just makes you feel really good. It makes you think that you're a decent driver, which you may or may not be. I suspect the car is doing 90% of it for you. Um, But at least it creates the illusion and you feel genuinely involved and heroic and so much part of the process. And yet with the SF90, it will do it, but you have to do it its way. You have to learn what it wants to do and then adapt your driving to suit the car. The, The car does not adapt itself to suit your driving style. Um, and because if you do try to drive it like that, what happens is it starts to do that. And then you can hear the car thinking, oh, well, this isn't fast because we're now sliding. So we'll just stick a load of power out the front. And we're just going to haul the idiot out the corner. And the front axle bites. And off you go. You go cannoning off up the road. And you're left there thinking, oh, well, I was quite enjoying that. Mm. Um, <laughs> so, yeah. Um, it's all to me, the problem with that car is it's driven from front axle. I don't need the traction. Yeah. Um, and I know you know it probably be 150 horsepower down as well, but you know I don't need that either. Um, I certainly don't need the you know the 100 odd kilos, presuming that driven front axle brings.
1: The whole hybrid
0: system is 270 kilos. Yeah. Okay. But okay. But yeah. But some of that's on the back end, isn't it? Yeah. Um yeah. And, and you ha- and, and they'll have to get so the car that really interests me, and I can't remember whether we said this on this podcast before, but the 296 GTB. Mm. which I believe we'll be driving quite early next year. I mean, when I drove the SF90, I said, you know, how much better would this car be if it didn't have a driven front axle? It would be lighter. It would be better balanced. You'd have some luggage space mm. so you can actually go somewhere in it. Um, you won't need the extra power because it's already got too much of it anyway. Um, and it would just be a more practical, better balanced, nicer, sweeter thing. And that appears to be exactly what the 296 GTB is. Um, so I'm really, really excited about that because, okay, it's got a V6, not a V8, but it's still 800 and something horsepower, isn't it? And it hasn't got a driven front axle and it's just got a hybrid mounted at the back end. So, you know, you'll be able to go places in it. Um, you won't have a front axle trying to save you from yourself. Um, that could be quite something.
1: Um, so because I drove the car at Fiorano, I was able to do a data session with an engineer afterwards, comparing my lap, my quickest lap to Rafa's quickest lap, um, Thankfully, they spared my blushes by not telling me the lap times, but I could see the data overlays all the telemetry. Um, and what you could see is how differently someone very, f- well, very skilled for one thing, but very familiar with the car, how they drive it and how someone uh, not familiar with the car drives it, i.e. me. Um, and the first thing was that Rafa uses way more brake pedal pressure initially and then bleeds off. I tend to be much more tentative on the brake, um, under braking probably leaving bigger braking zones as well, bigger, bigger braking margins. Um, and what was really interesting was coming out of a corner, and we were in race mode int- intentionally, we were both in race mode so that we had a, a, you know, a, a direct comparison between our laps. And what the, what the quick guys do, what the test drivers do, is that they just bang the throttle open as soon as they're sort of through the apex. They just bang the throttle open um, with no modulation whatsoever because they know that in race mode the car will do that for them. Um, whereas I, thinking this is what you should do when you drive, feather the throttle pedal in gradually. Um, but then I'm modulating it, and the car's modulating it as well, so you just
0: lose bundles of lap time. Um, but any idiot can stand on a, on a pedal, can't they? You, do you know what? The, 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 these systems are so good now. that uh, yeah. you know, and, and, and this is actually my beef with certain forms of sports car racing, where you've got... Um, you know, unbelievable ABS and unbelievable traction control. So to the extent that literally you know, you're coming into a corner, you just mash one pedal all the way into the exit and then mash the other pedal all the way to the exit. Yeah. Um, and it's, you know, it's it's a bit meat and two veg, isn't it? Don't you want to, make, to feel that you're making a difference, that it's yeah. your sensitivity on the throttle pedal, which is balancing the car. Yeah. Um, whereas, and of course, we all know that the systems are better than us. Um, we all know their smartness, and the cars will go quicker as a result. That's, but to me, that's not really what it's about, is it? But that's why these cars
1: have CT off mode, isn't it? The, the good thing is you can just turn them off. Um, and I think, but you know, I was only we only did this comparison after I'd finished driving the car. So I'd love to have had another session, having been told that that was the way to do it. And then it would be the simplest thing, wouldn't it, just to stand on the throttle. Probably feels weird the first time, but you do it. The other interesting difference was that in the very tight corners, the, the sort of hairpins at Fiorano, those guys use less steering lock and they just trust the torque vectoring on the front axle to bring them around. Whereas I, you know, just sort of use as much lock as I thought you would need. So it's, it's a very, very interesting session just comparing my lap to um, Raffaele's. Um, yeah, it's, and, and it, is, it just demonstrates how much of the work the car is doing for you, certainly in that mode. Which is, uh, yeah, very clever. Very clever. But, <laughs> yeah, quite. Yeah. Um, okay, so we've got one more car to talk about. The future, supposedly, of the, the performance car or the supercar. Before we get on to that, I just want to tell you what's been on the app recently, the Intercooler app. Um, if you don't know already, it's a digital car magazine. It's ours. We launched it, what, seven months ago or something. Um, and we just post what we think are really good, interesting articles every day, and it's stuff that you just won't read elsewhere. Um, So we've got our in-house engineer, David Tuig, um, this week writing about big wheels, and he explains why they're almost entirely bad for a car, no matter what the car is. Um, But he says that he hopes the car industry can repent, as it has done with certain other things, and gradually move back to smaller rims. It'd be interesting to see if he's right about that. Um, We've got Andrew English with a typically thorough and comprehensive three-part article on hydrogen fuel cells. So if, like many of us are, I'm sure, one, if you're wondering where all these fuel cell cars are, is it the future? Are, you, you know, For decades, we've been told they're 10 years away. Where are they? If you're wondering, go and read Andrew's piece, and you'll come away feeling very well-informed about hydrogen fuel cells. Um, another highlight recently was Peter Robinson writing about meeting John DeLorean he listened to our podcast on DeLorean and got in touch and said, I met the bloke, I went to the original launch, let me write something, and he has done.
0: It's the maddest car launch I've ever <laughs> heard anyone describe. It's completely brilliant.
1: Yeah, yeah, it's on the app. Go and have a look. You can you can start a one-month free trial. Um, we think you'll like it. Okay, so let's talk about the Porsche Mission R. Um, an all-electric racing car is a one-off for now, isn't it? But you've driven it. You drove it in L.A.,
0: What did you think? Well, it's very interesting, isn't it? I mean, I think we need to uh, get our expectations under a bit of control because, you know, Porsche are not saying, you know, this is the next Cayman or Boxster or let alone 911. Then again, we know that all those cars will sooner or later have to become electric. And it's as good a guide as exists at the moment as to what those sorts of cars are going to be like. So it started life as a Cayman. Um, there's almost none of that left. Um, It's got a lot of, I mean, underneath it, there's an awful lot of RSR stuff in there. Uh, It's got RSR front suspension. It's got an RSR rear axle and all sorts of stuff. Um, And obviously, and it's electric. And this is, what Porsche does say is it's Porsche's vision of the sort of the future of that kind of motorsport, which is why uh, it's a racing car. And the other, the most important thing to say about it is, Porsche doesn't do these sort of concept cars on a whim. It doesn't do concept cars because, oh, we haven't got anything to show at the LA show this year. We better knock up a concept car. Porsche just don't do that. Mm-hmm. You know, you look at the last mission concept car, on the Mission E, that turned into the Taycan. And if you look at a Mission E and you look at a Taycan, they're basically the same car. Um, so Porsche is definitely up to something with this. Um, so um, I drove it. Uh, they have a, a Porsche experience center. Uh, just, where is it? I think it's just north of Los Angeles. Um, It's quite a tight, twisting, technical track, but quite challenging. Um, I'm only allowed to admit in public to having driven it at uh, 100 kilometres per hour, because if they'd let me drive it much, much faster than that, I wouldn't be allowed to say so. So I'll leave you to figure that one out for yourself. (laughs) Um, because, Because Porsche has to be seen to be behaving itself. Um, whether it actually is or not is, 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 is another conversation. Um, but it's you know this is a prototype electric. I mean, one of the interesting things was I had a forty-five minute Zoom call uh, with the engineers before I even got on the plane to America, and the entire Zoom call was just about what happens when it go- if, if something goes wrong. They're so worried about this thing. Um, not that anything did go wrong, not that I thought for the moment, but the consequences because it's got nine hundred volts running through the middle of it um, could be quite. Could be quite severe. So I was told there were certain, certain circumstances in which I should just um, go back to the pits. Another set of circumstances where I should stop the car, but under no circumstances try to get out of it. Ooh. And then another set of circumstances where actually things were so bad you had to get out of it, at which stage you have to do this thing called a curbs leap, which is basically you have to get out of the car without touching the ground. Well, you can't, you can touch the ground or you can touch the car, but you absolutely can't touch them both at the same time. So, you know, I'm six foot four and I'm in my mid fifties and the idea of somehow funneling myself out <laughs> through the exit yet yeah, not and then sort of doing a sort of swallow dive off the back of the car and not coming into contact with the ground until I was up like, really just ridiculous. So I just kind of presumed that Porsche built their cars well enough not to require that kind of a and uh, sure enough, so they did. Um, so, yeah, so I drove it and... It's got a thousand, there's 1,100 horsepower in quality mode. I was only allowed to drive it in race mode, which is 640 horsepower, I think. Um, so it's still quite rapid. 1,500-kilo car, which is not that. I mean, it, it, it is heavier than, you know, uh, a bit heavier than, say, a GT3 car. Its lap time is uh, very similar to a Carrera Cup car. Uh, so that's the sort of level of performance we're talking about. And you know, I have been quite sniffy about, I mean, I've come on this podcast and and, and on uh, TI and elsewhere. I've often said that, you know, the question I keep on asking engineers to which I've yet to hear a convincing response is, how do you make an electric sports car? Mm. And so I was really, really interested to drive this thing. Um, and what I found was that it was completely involving. I got to the point where I really didn't mind the fact that it didn't have a gearbox. I kind of got over the fact that it didn't make wonderful noise because, because you didn't have to manage a torque curve because it's just all there all the time and you didn't have to think about which gear you were in. That provided more brain processing space for you to concentrate on you know, nailing your braking points, getting the car turned in, um, managing the car on the limit and so on and so forth. Um, so I actually really, really appreciated that. Um, and as a racing car, I thought that was, there was, there, 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 there's a future there. Maybe not for a spectator because mm. it's not going to sound great, but as someone to drive, um, yes, I suppose it would have been nice to be able to sort of bang it through the gears and everything else. Um, but I didn't find, I missed all those elements, anything like as much as I thought that I would. However, there's a big difference between driving around a test track as fast as you car, as fast as you can, in a slicks and wings racing car where you're just trying to go as fast as you possibly can, and taking a sports car for a nice drive in the country. Yeah? Uh-huh. It's a completely different thing. And if you're just taking a sports car for a nice drive in the country, all those things which surprised me by how little they bothered me. I think they're going to bother me all over again. I think I'm still going to want a lovely sounding engine. I think I'm still going to want to change gear. Um, and so to me, all those questions remain unanswered. Um, you know, the R was an incredible, given this a one-off, it's worth 8 million euros, this thing. Um, I can't imagine why they even let me in it, but they did. Um And for what it is and for what it's trying to do, which is to shine some kind of light on the future of sports car racing. And I suspect, and I absolutely don't know this, but my guess is that they will do a sort of like a Carrera Cup, a one-mate race series Mm. based on the next generation of Cayman, um, but with an electric powertrain. And obviously they're not going to stop doing Carrera Cup um, until they absolutely have to. So I suspect they'll run side by side. um, And that will be a sort of a way of easing us into the idea of electric Caymans and boxers and ultimately 9 Um, But I still, I can see how it works in the context of a racing car, at least from the driver's point of view. I still don't see how it works in the context of a sports car um, from the driver's point of view.
1: It's very, very good point. They're, they're such different things, aren't they? Track and road, totally different.
0: They are such different things. Yeah. So, Um, I'm still not saying that it can't be done all I am saying is I still haven't seen a convincing way in which it can be done
1: what a brilliant summary, That's perfect, that's all there (laughs) that was excellent for a poorly man Um, good, okay, well given that you are not feeling well we'll call that one there and let you get I don't know, back to bed or whatever it is you need <laughs> okay, good. Um, okay, well, I'll, it just leads me to say thank you again to JBR Capital, um, as I said at the beginning, one of the UK's leading car finance providers. Uh, go and check them out. The minimum amount that they'll lend is 25 grand. The average amount is £80,000 at JBR Capital on social media, jbrcapital.com online, and I'll put those, um, those links in the description. Um, as ever, please remember to rate and review the podcast, that does make a big difference. Uh, And we'll be back to talk to you all again next week. Look
0: forward to it. I'll be feeling better by then. (laughs) We hope so. (laughs) Bye.